I have some record. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode six of You're on Mute. Uh, Pastor Mom, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing, Elise? I'm You got great. anything you want to share with us? <laughs> uh, sure. Yes. Um, it's actually a very... Um, uh, a very uh, on-theme announcement for our conversation today. I am newly engaged uh, to um, my my partner Adam, and uh, less than a week with this ring on my finger, but uh, feeling good and and already doing some planning, and uh, very excited about our future together. So, um, finally found me. Finally found me a good one. Uh, all right. But, I know we're, we're all pretty happy in the Anderson household. So yes, that's, that's very, really awesome. Very excited. So, um, so yeah, so it's, it's an on topic thing because our conversation today is going to be about dating. Oh my gosh. What dun, kind dun, of dating dating as a pastor? Oh my um, Lord. Yeah. That's something which... I have absolutely no <laughs> experience with at all. <laughs> No, because you are of that lucky generation that met your soulmate in college and just never let go. That's right. That's right. Um, But I'm sure we'll hear that story later, which I'm looking forward to hearing a telling of it. I think I mostly know dad's uh, perspective, which is that side of it. Yeah. Most of the time, very typically exaggerated. So um, excited, excited for the truth to come out. That's right. Um, but uh, but no, and we also have a guest uh, joining us today, Pastor Kelsey Cress, who is normally, or sorry, uh, newly ordained and working in Region Eight um, uh, up in the D.C. area. So she's gonna she's a friend of mine from seminary, and um, the inspiration of her coming on for this specific episode is that she and I shared many many conversations on the bus to and from continuing ed in seminary, uh, sharing our joys and laments uh, on on dating as a seminarian. And now we're both uh, in the dating world as pastors. Well, I am now no longer in that world, which is still weird, but uh, <laughs> I have plenty of dumpster fire experiences to share. Uh, <laughs> from Right. My- and so what's I'm I'm just so intrigued with the way that um, that you young folk um, meet each other these days, because Mm -hmm. it's something that, well, certainly, you know, some baby boomers who've been divorced or have always been single and are still in the dating world Mm -hmm. um, experience, but the whole online dating and how you meet each other and what all the protocols are for, for doing that is just um, such a foreign thing. And I'm, I'm probably one of a a slowly dying breed of women, Mm -hmm. at least, who went straight from my parents' house to being married. And yeah. so yeah. I really, I really admire both you and your sister for, um, you know, making your own way in the world uh, mm-hmm. as, as a single person. Mm-hmm. I've never had the opportunity to do that, to see what I could do by myself on my own. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think it's a good growing experience. And absolutely. Uh, well, and we but, got we got so much of our skill sets and our our desire of independence and adventure, you know, from you and and also, you know, from dad. But, you know, you even even though you followed a, a rather traditional trajectory in terms of partnership and everything, um, you taught us a lot about how to be independent women in, in our worlds. And so, um, you know, it's just a different kind of different kind of independence. But 
uh, we always joke that um, you created these monsters. So that's you've right. Got, you've got to you've got to be dealing with it. Um, but uh, but no, I think, um, you know, when it's just you and I, we talk for over an hour. So I have a feeling this is going to be a long one. Uh, so Might buckle be. in, everybody. Um, buckle in. It should be good, though. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, It'll be great. And our, our one little disclaimer is the majority of the conversation um, is from the uh, heterosexual female experience. Um, uh, we we're hoping in the future to get, you know, more, more diverse views of different experiences. We do touch on, um, you know, uh, things we've heard from our, uh, queer colleagues and, and, and everything, but just kind of wanted to put that out there. We are very well aware of, of how our conversation is going to be going. So, um, anyway, uh, it's, it's a fun one. So, uh, let's, uh, let's tune in and listen to our interview with Kelsey. Well, we've got kind of like three people in like very in like different categories, right? So like you're fresh off of dating in seminary. I'm fresh off of dating slash going through engagement in first call. And then, I mean, we're skipping quite a few years, but then we've got, you know, uh, grandma here, grandma here, <laughs> the, the classic, um, well, it's a classic clergy, boomer, you know, clergy uh, spouses meeting. Yeah, spouse, well, spouses meeting college. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I kind of feel like the World War II generation, it was pretty typical for them to meet their life partner in high school. Yeah. And um, because, you know, once you graduated from high school, you're expected to start your life and get out of your parents' house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and then by by baby boomer time, it was everybody was kind of expected to go to college. And that's often where you met people outside of for the first time, mm-hmm. you know, outside of your hometown. And of course, you know, I was also thinking about how, you know, we didn't have the social media stuff or Internet. So meeting people was it was all personal, you know, and so if you, you know, you just kind of knew people from your high school or, you know, people that you were related to, but college was really the first time where I felt like I went and met people who grew up very differently than I did. Mm. And it wasn't like we didn't have radio and TV, but that that also was pretty limited. I mean, I watched the nightly news, you know, on NBC for half an hour, but that was pretty much it. One of three channels. One of three channels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sending, so, sending Morse code. Well, why don't you tell us um, your and dad's story real quick? mom and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty of how absolutely awful it is to date as a pastor now or <laughs> really really just dating in general and then we'll kind of explain why being a pastor and dating especially as a woman is um absolutely the worst right right um well so um my husband frank was from florida i was from columbia south carolina we met at a lutheran college in south carolina called newberry and uh, so we, we were both there and he and I actually met our very first week of, um, of our freshman year. He was serving on the yearbook staff and I was coming through to get my yearbook picture made and he just started picking at me right away. And then um, <laughs> one of the, uh, one of the, I guess you would call it um, um, either flirting or sexually inappropriate rituals that we had on campus with, you know, at this time was a thing called a panty raid. Mm. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. what happened because <laughs> so this is girl- unfair because Elise has certainly heard this story before. And I, have not. <laughs> no. I wish I wish people could feel see free the to look on feel your free face. to laugh and gasp <laughs> as appropriate. So oh uh, because the the young women were all in one dorm or two or three, and the guys were all in another. Um, you know, our the women's dorms were pretty much locked down after about eight, maybe nine o'clock at night. And don't so let no- the women out. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> well, and the thing was, even even if the guys came over, um, you had to um, you know entertain each other in the common like TV room. There was no going up to people's rooms or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Except I think you could maybe on a Saturday afternoon or something, but um, everybody had to keep at least one foot on the floor. That was one of the rules. And the, the house mother would come through, of course, the door had to be open and one foot had to be on the floor. (laughs) And um, they strictly enforced these things. So, so anyway, like I said, it's kind of a, I don't know, kind of a way to, to flirt. They do these panty raids. And so, you know, it would be at night and all the guys would be, you know, below our windows, um, you know, saying God knows what. And then um, what they wanted was for us to throw our underwear down to them. <laughs> Doesn't this sound just like so romantic and wonderful? Oh, this is so and gross. what was interesting <laughs> was and then the other <clears throat> thing that we did and, and I found this to be just so bizarre. I mean, I'd never dated anybody. And so <laughs> I just didn't know what was going on. But part of what the uh, part of what the girls did was they would go into the bathroom, which was um, a common bathroom in the middle of the hall. Mm-hmm. And they would fill up buckets of water and try to pour them on the guys down below. But then, of <laughs> course, ultimately, ultimately, they did throw their panties down. Mm-hmm. Well, Frank was not that interested in doing this. He just wanted to meet people. <laughs> so <laughs> there was a there was a fire escape. There was a fire escape at the bathroom window, and these are old buildings, right? So there's ginormous wind, big you know wooden windows kind of thing. I feel like I'm talking like I lived in the Jurassic era or something, <laughs> but pretty close. <laughs> It's amazing how things have changed so much. So anyway, I'm trying to play along. And so I'm in the girls bathroom or the bathroom and I'm filling this bucket up with water and I look over and there's this guy sitting on the fire escape. He's not trying to get in because that was the other thing they tried really hard to do was to get in the dorm and be able to run the halls. And of course, eventually some girls would let them in. It was, it was all like this liturgy, right? You know, now we gather, now we. <laughs> I love that you called it a liturgy just now. That is both <laughs> the funniest and nerdiest thing I think you've well, done because so far. It, like, you know, <laughs> I was thinking it was, it was, ritual, it, was so, yeah. <laughs> it was so scripted in some ways. And yet we tried to act so spontaneous. So there's this guy sitting in the stairwell and I looked over and and here was this guy. He goes, hi, I'm Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Want to be friends? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> 
and he didn't ask me for my underwear or anything. You know, he was just over there trying to meet people as they came in and he had discovered and he wasn't. Yeah. yeah. So the rest and my is dad, and a little, little background on Frank <laughs> is he he makes friends much easier or w- at least when he was younger, much easier with women. So right. he's probably just like, they lock up all my friends at nine o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> it would be. Yeah. <laughs> so, he was, oh he was goodness. a regular who came over to the women's storm, but he wasn't dating anybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Until, until that sounds so wholesome almost. Oh yeah. Like it was, it's very sort of like, yeah. you know, cornfields in Iowa type of thing. Yeah. And then you guys dated, you dumped him a couple times. I did. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because guess why? He seemed too immature. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, not much has changed. Um, (laughs) Just kidding. Love you, dad. But, uh, but yeah. And then you guys got engaged, what, your junior year of college? Mm -hmm. And then married like well, dad had to do summer school. No surprise. So then we got, we got married in August. Um, when we, right when we graduated and when did you, when did you guys have the conversation and realize that you both wanted to be pastors? Um, before, um, this was one of, this was one of the issues. Frank was a member of a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod congregation and, um, LCMS, as you may know, I think really still to this day, you know, they totally pay for folks from their congregation to go to seminary. Yeah. They're big on education across the board, but right. And they, um, it was sort of part of the pastor's duty to kind of help raise you up and take you to Fort Wayne, where you would be enrolled in Concordia, um, seminary. (laughs) And so they were, they were about to do that. And Frank came home over Christmas break and um, sat down and talked to his pastor, whom he liked a lot, and told him that he that you know he had met me and that I was um, going to be a pastor as well. But I was in the Lutheran Church in America, and um, his pastor looked at him and said, "You know, if if God wants you to be a pastor, God will break up this relationship." Uh, yep, <laughs> I know. <laughs> So he, um, so Frank left in tears from that congregation and went to the um, LCA church that he um, had been part of at one time uh, as a younger person and met this hip, cool new pastor there who had gone to Hama Theological. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Hama, but it was kind of the, it was almost like the hippie seminary of the LCA in Ohio. And uh, I assume it's part of Trinity now, probably. But uh, yeah. So anyway, Wayne Schmidt was had just uh, not too long from uh, come out of Hama. And so dad sort of tells him his story, you know, and and Pastor Schmidt goes, well, why don't you come here on Sunday and why don't you do the liturgy, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so it just kind of folded him in. And before he knew it, he was. Um, heading up the youth group there and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Nice. And then you guys went to Philly together. To Philadelphia Seminary, which is, was kind of couple. my choice. Yeah. Cause she wanted good, the, she wanted the best professors. I did, but did I you also. Go right after undergrad? What now? You went right after undergrad to seminary? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Usually so. We did. Yeah. 
And so how many other, cause this was 70, 78, 78. Mm -hmm. So women had been getting ordained for eight years. Mm -hmm. And so how many other clergy couples do you think were with you guys? I know there was a couple above you and a couple below you in the apartments, right? Mm-hmm. So if you could, if you could guesstimate, I can guesstimate because good old John Kaufman, who was the registrar, um, told us that we were the first clergy couple to come in together. People were meeting each other at seminary a little bit at that point, but we were the first ones that came in together. Whoa. Yeah. Well, breaking ground, groundbreaking stuff. Oh man, (laughs) goodness gracious. And then you guys staggered your internships, right? Because you got, you had Colleen. That wasn't the reason. No, the the reason was because I know what, (laughs) whoa, sorry, Mary. I'm just (laughs) trying to piece it all together. But go it ahead, takes tell time. Us. It tell takes us what's time. Up. Tell us what's well, up. Well, no, because we started together. We were in our junior year together. Then we started our middler year or second year together. And um, I think it was after the first semester, um, Frank kind of said, I'm not sure this is really for me. Cool. Yeah. And so um, he took a semester off. The dean insisted that he at least stay in one class. Is that and when he, he worked at the Y downtown in downtown Philly? He worked at may the Y? Have been, but he was actually doing some other jobs. And um, hmm. yeah, so he did that. So that got us off from each other. Gotcha. Um, and so then I ended up going on internship and had to stay in the Philadelphia area for that, which I did. Um, and then he finished up that. Um, semester that he needed to do. Um, And then I finished my internship. We had Colleen at that point. Um, And then I took what essentially was his internship year off. So he could go anywhere. And so we ended up in Connecticut. And then all three of us (laughs) came back (laughs) for our senior year together. Uh, That's what we did. So not only Getting married at 22, Correct. which to me feels so weird. I know. I mean, your generation just like that seems odd. I mean, getting married at 35 feels weird to me. <laughs> um, and then, you know, going to seminary together as a married couple, watching a bunch of other clergy couples get together, but also going through seminary pregnant and then with a newborn. Mm-hmm. That is the most foreign idea to me. <laughs> ever so we don't really and and my internship uh supervisor was not very happy that I was pregnant and I thought I was being so smart in you know um timing the pregnancy so that I would have the baby right when internship was over Mm -hmm. and you know stupidly sort of assumed that I would just like go back to school or something you know in September (laughs) <laughs> I don't think I would have done that anyway, but he was yeah. mainly upset because it would, he was afraid it might interfere with his August vacation. Um, yes. And so well, because you didn't consider him in that. Right. <laughs> and so you. because of that, he made me do a nine month internship instead of a 12 month internship, which was permissible. Mm-hmm. But what it meant was, and then we had, and then he made sure that the new intern was right in behind me. And, ha- and moved into the vicarage. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So we had, and then Frank's internship wasn't starting until um, September. So the last six weeks of my pregnancy, we were basically homeless and lived in an apartment at the seminary that uh, belonged to some friends of ours. And they were somewhere else. I don't remember where they were for the summer, but the whole apartment was totally packed up with their boxes. (laughs) And so we lived in this apartment. (laughs) And then weren't you like house sitting when you had? Yes. And then the last two weeks we had to house sit (laughs) because then we had to be out of that apartment. Right. Now that part the whole like in between housing that is totally seminary. Yeah, one hundred percent. That is part, true. That part is is so familiar. Right. Every minus every the year, also being pregnant baby. while doing yeah, it. Every yeah. year you're in different housing. <laughs> right. Yes, yes, and you always have right. these weird gaps of like, well, hell, where am I going to live for three weeks? <laughs> oh my yeah. god! So then we moved. Then we moved to last thing I'll say. Then we moved to drove up to Connecticut for Frank's internship. Um, with a little two-week-old Colleen in, in the car seat in the back. <laughs> so it's crazy. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. Like uh, well, why don't you introduce us, Elise? And... I feel like I'm going to throw up. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah cannot relate. 10 yeah, 10 cannot 10 relate. relate. Okay, all right. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Boomer. All right, Good so that was, a, that, that was the Boomer story. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, here's the good news. I didn't have to worry about dating the whole time. That's true. It's a, it's a real, um, it's a real journey. It's a real journey. So, um, to, to just kind of introduce, I realized we didn't actually say, um, who's here today. So, uh, we are blessed with the presence of one Kelsey Cress, newly ordained. Um, and, uh, so excited about that. And, uh, Kelsey and I went to seminary together. We worked in the public church fellows together, and we had many a bus ride getting to our placement site, um, talking about lamenting the woes of dating while not just in seminary, but also, um, you know, in the future as pastors. So, uh, Kelsey's here to just kind of shoot the shit with us. And I do want to give a little bit of a background on one of the reasons or some of the reason why dating as a pastor or even a seminarian kind of once you're in this like religious track can be so frustrating is a document that no longer quote exists, but is still very in our minds, in our minds. (laughs) Um, but it's called, it was, it was called visions and expectations. Oh, it was just one vision. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it was just one vision. one vision for celibacy and expectations. Yes, exactly. And now, you know, thank you for saying that. That's exactly. so true. Yeah, one, vision. Yes. one vision of <laughs> celibacy. Exactly. So there there's a new document now that I keep forgetting the name of. But in terms of it's like about discipline. Yeah, it is. Sorry. Sorry, Bishop Eaton. We don't have it right. Like, yeah. Sorry, bishops. Uh, it in terms of like sex relationships and dating, the rules are the same basically. So I'm always fascinated at how few um, church members actually know that this is kind of what their pastors are quote like up against. And so Mm -hmm. the basically in term, and, and I do need to say that for a very long time. And I know um, folks at LSTC were pretty instrumental in getting this language changed. It was exponentially harsher on LGBTQ folks. 
like mm-hmm. just putting that out there. It was, uh, it was, um, the language was much, much harsher when it came to the vision and expectation for, um, that community. But basically, well, and I think that document, oh, yeah. that document was weaponized more often against members of the LGBTQIA community mm-hmm. more than it was against, um, straight people. Yes, totally. Yeah. Nailed it. So that document essentially said, you know, um, you can't cohabitate with your significant other before marriage. Um, and, uh, very strict rules also on remaining celibate before marriage. Um, and obviously along going alongside that for, for women not getting pregnant before marriage. So, um, it's, if you it's look kind at of it, like the one foot on the floor thing, it was and the door it, it's, open, it's, right? It's, it's the door open, one foot on the floor it. rule. Yeah. And um, so it was I think what crazy. it said, what it said specifically, which is how I always quoted it to people, was that you were expected not to have sexual relations with anyone who was not your legal spouse. Right. So the document really intends people not to have affairs or sex outside of marriage. But what it mm-hmm. also does is it basically says that everyone who's not legally married must remain celibate under that document. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the whole document vision and expectations, you know, it, it basically states the obvious that as a pastor, really, anytime you're a leader in a community, you're living in somewhat of a fishbowl. And it's basically saying, you know, there, there are also sections on visions and expectations that are about like financial responsibility, um, you know, uh, kind of, uh, just general addiction. Yes. Things like that. So, you know, it's, it's kind of these unrealistic, unrealistic expectations of pastors, which, you know, kind of make you seem like you should not be a human being in a lot of ways. And it's like, it's one of those things where you can understand the, you can like understand what they were trying to do they just did it really poorly. And, and, you know, what do you think, what do you think mainly they were afraid of that would happen? Cause it really kind of, it really, the image that just came to me when you all were talking about it was, you know, they, it, it's almost like saying you need to be like a monk or a nun, you know, during this time. So what, what do you think they, Kelsey, what do you think they were like really afraid of? I think, I think a lot, of, and at least I agree that like, there's, there's what they were trying to do and then what the language does, but I think there's, it was also a little bit more insidious, mm. um, in, in its purpose, especially in regards to the LGBTQIA community. But I think in general, what the document does is it relieves the denomination of liability in a lot yeah. of situations. Mm-hmm. So like you said, a lot of it is most of the document actually was about stuff that didn't have anything to do with sex. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Like you said, it had to do with financial stuff. It has stuff about addiction. It has stuff about um, having relationships with your parishioners. It had all different kinds of other stuff in it. Um, But I think the, the, the writers of the document intended for the document to be able to be used at the Bishop's discretion for disciplinary measures. So it didn't have any other thing about how the document had to be enforced, but it could be enforced mm-hmm. um, in at the bishop's discretion. Well, and do you think yeah. that, um, you know, in the ordination vows, part of what it, you know, asked the 
the new pastor to pledge to do is to engage in holy living. And do you think this was like, here's a definition of what holy living looks like, but then, you know, like you said, they just left it to bishops' discretions and all that, which could really vary, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. yeah. I think it was an attempt at, at that definition. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're you totally nailed it in terms of liability, you know, but at the same time, when you know there there were all those other things laid out in that document, but what everyone remembers it as is the document on sex and relationships, because that it was typically only referenced in disciplinary actions towards people who were either living with a partner or like somehow, you know, someone found out they were engaging in sexual relationships or they found out their pastor was, you know, cheating on their spouse or something like that. And then, you know, all of a sudden visions and expectations became this huge thing because I mean, you know, you hear stories about pastors who kind of cross the line with their parishioners or, you know, are struggling with addiction or, you know, having an issue with their finances, but you never necessarily see the harsh reactions from our church body when it comes to those issues. There's more compassion, I think, in, in those ways, um, you know, than they are. I mean, cause if they, if, if they're really trying to, you know, promote this financial responsibility, those of us with the student loan debt we have probably shouldn't have made it through the candidacy process. And I actually know someone who that's the excuse they use. Granted, he didn't really have, he didn't really check a lot of other boxes and probably would have struggled in other ways. But the reason his, you know, candidacy team told him he wasn't passing through was because he had so much student loan debt. And so it's just very interesting as to what is given more weight over other things. Um, And, you know, shocker, like most church documents, it has not kept up with society's definition of what is healthy relationships. And so, um, you know, so if, if we could sit here for a long time and talk about the ins and outs of this document. So imagine explaining that on a date. I was just going to say that. <laughs> I was just going to say that because to be honest, like that is one of the first questions often that comes out of, well, and I'll say, I'll just say up, up top, I date men exclusively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is one of the first questions that comes out of men's mouths when they find out that I'm in this process, that this is the calling that I am pursuing. Mm -hmm. Um, It is about the question about, can I, am I allowed to have premarital sex? And then, you know, I have to explain this document and what it says and my personal feelings on the document. Right. Um, And then there's the, and then, and then all of a sudden in the, in the wall of the restaurant is a man shaped hole. And the guy is like sprinting down the block. I mean, I get, yeah. So I, I too, uh, exclusively have dated men and, and I'm now marrying one, but, um, it, it is like, I, so the two things that I always noticed, cause I primarily, um, you know, I'm definitely in the online dating, um, era, Right. It was like kind of new and which and, is a total mystery to us baby boomers, by the way. And it's not just boomers. I was chatting, I was doing a, a podcast with um Becca Selnick, who is actually um 
uh, doing her own podcast as well called PK PK talked about it a little bit on here before she's actually younger than me, I think, or if not right at my age, but she got married when she was 25. So she has no experience with online dating either. So it's, it's kind of like where, where you were in your life. I mean, even my best friend, Jackie, who's my age, she got married. She was engaged, you know, right out of college basically. So she doesn't, she's never experienced online dating, um, and the hellscape that it can be. (laughs) My sister got married, um, to her college boyfriend and Mm -hmm. the, the apps had begun when my sister was in college. She's a year behind me, but she was never on them because she was in college at the time. Yeah. And like, didn't really need it. And they were mm-hmm. together for several years before they got married. So yeah, yeah even my sister who's younger than me, right. Like, <laughs> has never been on the apps. And I know. Here and I am an old pro. An like. old pro. Exactly. Well, and I would always kind of play around where, you know, let's say like I was on OkCupid and match. Right. So like on OkCupid, you know, I, you to OG when you say, okay, I know. Right. <laughs> Okay, Cupid was at one point a happening, happening place. Oh, um, yeah. now it's depending on the city you're in, it can be real. It was real creep fest in Chicago, I noticed. Um, but uh, but so like on Okay, Cupid, I would like list my profession. I mean, this is like you know a year ago. I would list my profession as pass as a pastor, and then on Match, I wouldn't list a a profession, but I would say I was a religious person. And so it was fascinating because I got more traffic on match than on OkCupid or people or like, these were my favorites. And I don't know if you've had this too, Kelsey, but like, I'm, I'm pretty open or I was pretty open to dating someone that wasn't like super religious. You know, it was one of those things where it's like, I, I didn't think it was something that needed to keep us from like a first date. If it, wasn't a de- if it wasn't a deal breaker. It wasn't a deal breaker. Yeah. It was right. like, you know, whatever. Yes. And so, um, <laughs> so I would like shoot, let's use the name Dave. Right. I'd be like, Hey Dave, like, um, Hey, I see you're a Florida state fan too. That's awesome. Um, you know, how's it going? And Dave, you know, the agnostic, cause they all, they would list, you know, how do you know someone's an agnostic? They'll tell you. And um, so I would get a paragraph long response from Dave that would say, hello, Elise. Um, I just wanted to say that you, <laughs> I really enjoyed your profile. You seem like such a cool person and we have a ton in common, but I just don't think that it would be fair to either of us to pursue anything when our belief in God is so, so different. I just don't, I just don't see any way around it. And it's like, okay, Dave, well, good talk. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know how many times you got that, but that happened well, to me all the time. I don't know, Elise, have you been like breaking into my accounts and reading my messages? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that is the experience that I have time and time again. Yep. It, and that is, that is part of what like terrifies me about dating Mm -hmm. um I actually so so interestingly enough you mentioned like putting your profession and not putting your profession Mm -hmm. so I dated as a seminarian and just did it as a student with like my school underneath so if people were like real curious they could google and a lot of people did um 
but I, you know, remained as a student, which was easier. Mm -hmm. Um, now as a pastor, and I am currently not dating because I just started a new call and I'm like quite literally too busy for any of that (laughs) rigmarole, (laughs) um, and the emotional labor really that it takes. Yeah. But I am, I am currently like paralyzed by that question. Mm -hmm. Like, am I upfront about it? Am I not? And I actually, I follow a couple like dating and relationship um, influencers, if you will, online yeah. <laughs> from like TikTok and Instagram. Right. right. Um, and I actually like asked this question of one of them recently. And she said that she also, because she has a dating and relationship podcast, she also does not disclose her, um, occupation upfront. Okay. And she said, yeah, I don't think you have to put it like, you can just have no occupation. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously I would list that I have a master's degree also, which I think like is, is whatever, but I'd be curious, but which is another thing yeah. that somehow terrifies the dating pool is when you're highly educated. That's like a whole other ball of wax is I've had guys that are just like, I just don't know if I could actually have a conversation with you. And it's like, all right, well then have a good yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, see ya. But I think there's, there's so much of this, like for me, and I have always said this, that the, the pastor, the religious, the seminarian thing feels like one wall after another mm-hmm. that people have to be willing to like break through in order to get to me. And yeah. I felt, and I have always felt this way. And I have expressed this to a couple of my coupled friends. And I think, um, we've actually had some good conversations about it is that often people who show up to seminary already in relationships or already married those people got to know their significant others without those barriers yeah right so there there were less things in between them and their significant other that allowed them to get to know each other and Mm -hmm. that's often how I feel the whole the whole like pastor thing shows up for me in dating is that it is a hurdle that someone must get over in order to get to know me and that is distressing to me that people can't get to know me first. And obviously my religion, my job, my vocation, my calling, it's a huge part of who mm-hmm. I am, Yeah, but it's not the only thing. Like being a pastor is not my personality trait. Right. Well, how, much, how think- much do you think that's because just in our society in general, there are such stereotypes about clergy? Yes mostly bad as far as I can tell. And then, and then really, no, I don't know that there are any stereotypes of women clergy yet. Um, I think we've been too, you know, we're still too much of a minority. Just nuns. nuns. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So that's all they have to relate to. So, oh, it's like you're a nun. So no, which is why the two, oh, go ahead, Kelsey. Sorry. No, you're good. Associate me with being someone who is going to like, require them to go to church or expect Mm -hmm. them to go Mm -hmm. to church or to require them to change whatever it is about their life as like a gatekeeping thing or a ticket of admission kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Well, because that is a stereotype of clergy that that's our job, right? Mm -hmm. To convert, to bring you to Jesus, whatever it is. Well, so I, I've, I've noticed kind of three very typical responses to, you know, being a clergy woman in the dating world, one is kind of that terrified, 
I'm never going to get laid. I'm running away from this, this mother superior person. Um, then there's kind of the middle ground, like you were saying, Kelsey, where they might be willing to break through some of the barriers, but they're terrified to do it. And then the third one, which really creeps me out. And I happened a couple times is the, um, um, fetishization the fetish, fetishization. yes yes oh, wow. however you would say that word yes, yes fetishizing this idea of um being intimate with a, a clergy woman um clergy who person there, who is forbidden in whatever way yeah it's like this forbidden mm. fruit um catholic you know catholic school nun fantasy um, or, or even I noticed this in the South with some guys that were just like, oh, thank God. I've been looking for a good God fearing woman, you know, kind of thing. And I'm just like, I, I don't, I don't know if I really fit that stereotype either, you know? So it's like, I think you're kind of stuck in between where you're not this like, you know, um, super ultra, uh, I call it like Pinterest, Pinterest religion, where like, you've got the, you know, God bless this house signs everywhere. And you make your kids do Bible study before dinner and all of that. But you're, you're also not like irreverent about things. And so it's like, well, where do you fit in that? And, and who, who can kind of come along with me, uh, you know, in that, in that journey as well. It's, it's, they're, they're, they're real unicorns. It, it's, it, they're, it's a tough, it's a tough breed to find, but I mean, like you were saying, mom, so much of it goes back to the, the um, expectation of a clergy person or whatever. I mean, I remember as a kid, people were like, some of my friends were like scared to come over to our house because both That's my true. parents were pastors and they thought there was mm. going to be this like oil painting of Jesus above the mantle. And we were going to like pray to a cross b- before dinner. And then I've even met people that are just like, you don't act like a pastor. I'm like, well, what do you think a pastor's supposed to act like? And, you know, they're like, well, you're like drinking a beer and you just like drop the F bomb. And I'm like, well, I'm a human being. <laughs> I mean, right. We are crazy. in our thirties in 2021 and like very much products of our current society, I yeah. would say in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but if also- they don't think religion, but if they don't think church and religion are part of our current society, you know, right. we're no longer really at the core of things, I think we're just as influential or can be, but, um, you know, since we've moved to the sidelines, it just makes us like a subculture instead of being kind of part of dominant culture. So they don't know what to do with it. I feel like we're, we, we're like standing on, we got one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat and the dock is the church and it's just not moving. And mm-hmm. we're just kind of like, come on. And then the boat is like societal expectations and societal things. And our generation of pastor is literally just like doing the splits, trying mm-hmm. to like bridge the gap a little bit. And because the, the definition of, of, you know, healthy romantic relationships has changed in society's eyes. And, you know, it, the church just hasn't caught up to that and is still punishing um, pastors for you know, things that really shouldn't be punishable. I mean, yeah, we should not, if you're going to take marriage vows, take them seriously and, you know, commit yourself. But there are also people that for both partners sake and open marriage is, 
what's best for them. And so mm-hmm. there's, there hasn't, and again, I mean, I feel like in general, having sex conversations about sex and things like that and relationships can still feel kind of taboo in some circles, but no circle is more closed off about having this conversation than the church. Um, and, you know, totally. considering women pastors and just women in general in most professions, but I've gotten more icky comments about my, about me being a pastor than I ever did in the world of athletic training. I mean, I had someone from my congregation when they met Adam for the first time said, Oh, wow. You know, that's funny. I've always wondered how kinky she is. And this is someone who I barely know they come to church every now and then with their wife and they're sitting in my, in the pews of my church, watching me preach and preside over communion, wondering how kinky I am. Yeah, that is foul. Totally. You told me, you told me that story when I came to visit you in July too. And Mm -hmm. I, I just, that is just so like repulsive to me. Yeah. The, the, you know, the ways that people can can sexualize women standing on the altar in a ways in a way that they would never 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 do that yeah and and just the whole there's also all kinds of um i don't know what to call it um mythologies taboos around women's bodies Mm -hmm. and um a woman who was uh phyllis anderson who actually was over the division for ministry in the elca and seminary president in California. So she was telling me one time that she was, and this was when she was, you know, working at the ELCA, I think. So we're talking not like ancient, ancient history. Mm-hmm. So she was um, supply preaching or the guest preacher in a congregation. She was, um, she was in the bathroom before, uh, before worship. And there was another woman in there too. And, um, Phyllis was at the, at the sink and she pulled a a tampon out of her purse. And, um, the other woman looked at her like, Oh, and, and, uh, you know, because there was this whole thing about menstruating women, not doing the sacrament. I mean, there was just all this creepy, you know, I don't know if you guys have heard about that or not, but you know, it was like, suddenly she was seen oh, as an unclean person unclean <laughs> unclean i know uh, where's the leper bell i mean well and and there are wow. still i mean and i mean that's just insane but i, know, I also but also have, true which is weird yeah and like just you know our you know how limited our scope even though the the you know our our human sexuality decision of 2009 um, was a huge, you know, door swinging open moment for LGBTQIA, you know, siblings, there are still people. And these folks are in my congregation who will not take communion from an LGBTQ pastor Mm -hmm. or who are thinking of leaving the ELCA because there's a trans Bishop in California. Mm -hmm. I mean, we are just, we, you know, and, and, you know, my congregation, you know, for the most part open, like wants to have these conversations, but, and I think this is the case in a lot of congregations, even no matter how they felt about the decision in 2009, they, they lost members Mm -hmm. for, for either reason. That was a traumatic, huge groundbreaking experience for the church that I feel like if you wanted to celebrate it, you celebrate it and you move on. 
or you, you got pissed and you either left the ELCA or you begrudgingly stayed in your church because it was your place to be. And there was like no trauma counseling that happened for right. these congregations. And so now the door is even more closed on talking about not just human sexuality and sexual orientation, but you know, how your pastor is dating a sexual person, a sexual person and, and a romantic person and somebody that, you know, I, the, the amount of folks, especially down here who have come to me wanting to talk about their relationships because they were, they grew up in purity culture Mm. and they need to hear from a pastor that it is okay to feel sexual desires. And, you know, does God hate me because I want to sleep with my partner? And it's Mm -hmm. like, no. (laughs) And so it's just like, you know, how can we break ground on these conversations? Because I feel like, you know, maybe it'll leak down into our dating pools and eventually it won't be so hard for, for pastors. And, and I don't know, like I, I did have a few setup attempts at my church. I think, I think our male counterparts, especially, um, those who are straight are definitely constantly getting set up by, you know, their members saying like, Oh, I need you to, you need to meet my granddaughter. Or you need to meet my, mm-hmm. my niece. Well, I mean, I've, I've heard that a lot. Are you getting that? that? Oh, I'm not. No. Yeah. But the whole <laughs> thing was back in the old days, if you went on internship and you were single, mm-hmm. like you picked up a girl from that congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I know. Oh, it's, and then it's, they got married. It's I mean, amazing. <laughs> and, and, so uh, we have this great teaching pastor of my congregation for whom that was the case. Mm-hmm. He met his wife on internship and mm-hmm. then he told that story from the pulpit a couple of weeks ago. Oh, yeah. great. Like today, I, I would find it very inappropriate for you to start dating someone who is a member of your internship congregation. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're not supposed to. No, <laughs> I know, you're it's not. It's crossing so it many was, boundaries. <laughs> it's it's the norm. It well, the thing norm. is, so here's what I'm wondering about. Uh, before I get to the what I'm wondering about, so one of the um, comebacks that actually a woman in my tiny little rural congregation a couple of years ago said, because there were some people who said to her, well, I just, I can't imagine, I would never take communion from a gay pastor And this older woman just looked at him and said, I'm sure you already have. (laughs) Yup. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering, Kelsey, so you're like, you're like pretty new in the parish where you are. I mean, have you, have you considered or would you consider having a couple of like workshops, if you will, about, you know, the dating issues and what the church says about that? Um, and, and to get their feedback and support, you know, so you bring, you know, so one guy maybe that you're dating comes to church and you feel like you're kind of serious and you um, introduce that person as your current boyfriend. Two months later, he's not around anymore. And people, I mean, you know, so because this is what happens, right? And it's okay for that to be the case with you as well. I don't know. What do you, what can we do? Yeah, so I would say in my context, I work specifically with youth and young adults. Mm-hmm. And so while youth and, and college age are emerging adults. So um, I have found in the campus ministry setting that the more honest you can be when they ask questions about dating and relationships, the better. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I would say I would probably upon being questioned, be more inclined to deflect less with my youth and, and young adults than I oh, would yeah, with, sure. with older members. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know really that I would, I would address it so specifically. I think mm-hmm. it, for me, it would probably be on a like case by case basis. I have never ever dated anyone that I invited to come to church with me. Mm-hmm. I have not gotten that serious with anyone that I had invited them to church. It is my personal philosophy that it is maybe a little weird to have your significant other at your job, watching mm-hmm. you, doing your job, being a part of the group where you do your job. I, you know, I think, again, we live and work in a field where like that is blurred a lot, like your mm-hmm. church and your, your occupation, that those lines are very blurred. But for me, especially when it comes to a significant other, I'm not sure, I certainly won't require people to be Mm -hmm. in church with me. I don't expect my significant other to be coming to church every week or to be regular or to be playing the piano or like doing all those things that church spouses often did. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and I think, I think that's another assumption that people make, right? Is that, Mm -hmm. oh God, like if I'm dating this girl, like. I'm going to have to be in church every week. And it's like, yeah. actually, I'd prefer that you weren't. Right. <laughs> Not my right. church anyway. <laughs> no, I mean, there's, that's also, I mean, there is like, um, there is that expe- expectation of a, of a clergy spouse, right? I mean, uh-huh. there's, you know, no matter the gender, I think there's, um, there's always kind of that you're going to, you're going to all of a sudden be super involved. And I mean, for me in previous relationships, even just when I was going to a church, like pre-seminary, um, I always told the guys I was dating, you're welcome to come with me, but you don't have to like, that's not a, it's not a deal breaker for me in this relationship. You know, for me thinking ahead, I was always like, but our kids are going to be Lutheran and you need to be okay with that. You know, (laughs) but, um, but I think like for me with Adam, I was okay with him being around at church, like instantly. And I think that was a big indicator for me, of my Mm -hmm. comfort level with him and like was kind of one of the things that was like, Oh, this is, this is like real, like this, you know, like a week into our relationship or two weeks, he was coming with me to a social event that I was hosting for, for new faces, which is where, um, he was asked how kinky I was. And, um, and to which he just kind of like fake laughed and changed the subject. I was like, okay, that's really all you could do in that situation. Um, but, in general, like, and he's the type where he wants to be very helpful. He wants to be very supportive. And I've told him numerous times, you know, you don't have to come every Sunday. If if you, if you want to sleep in, sleep in, if you had a tough week at week at work, like stay, stay home. And he's like, well, I want to be supportive. And I, I enjoy watching, you know, you kind of do your thing and I'm actually learning a lot. He likes the people at church. So I'm like, okay, cool. But I have yet to, and probably won't for a while, ask him to do something like logistical at church. Mm, like we, mm-hmm. we really needed someone to run our camera at a service a couple of weeks ago. And he was like, I can do it. And I was like, no, <laughs> no, not, boundary. not like nothing against you, but we are, we're drawing this boundary. Like mm-hmm. just because you're my partner does not mean you're free labor for the church mm-hmm. and does not mean that you have to step up every time there's a gap. 
missing. And I've seen, you know, pastors kind of do well, middle-aged white male cis heterosexual pastors. I've seen both ends of the spectrum. My internship supervisor, his wife had chronic illness and she was very much not a church person. She, she kind of had given up on the faith community a long time ago. Um, and so she, even if she had been healthy, had no interest in the church whatsoever. She, there were people that had been there the whole time he was their pastor and had met her maybe once. And he's been at that congregation for like eight years. And then on the opposite side, my current co-pastor, his wife is like our, our third staff person. Like she is in everything. I know that like, you know, she, she's a big part of his conversations when he comes home. It, it is interesting kind of the, the more modern clergy spouse and how they figure that out. And, and it really does take a special person, not necessarily to fill that role, but to navigate what it means for them. Because this is a, this is a vocation that is not a nine to five. Um, we definitely have boundaries to draw that previous generations did not do a good job drawing. No offense, mom. Um, <laughs> but it's okay. But um, you know, and with you and dad, you guys never had those traditional clergy spouse roles because the other your spouse was a clergy person. I know. And so you guys, you know, that was a whole different ball of wax for for you guys. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think. And I know every generation feels the weight of having to like, you know, rewrite the script a little bit, but I feel like, especially in this arena, I mean, in our lifetimes, I would say Kelsey and kind of our, our maturing the, the, the world's view on human sexuality has matured way more in probably the last 20 years than it has. Yeah, in the last it, It's like, it's not a new chapter in the book. It's a different book. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're just, we're on to volume two or something, mm -hmm. but yeah. Um, yeah. Can you all say, I'm wondering, cause I really just don't know. Um, but I suspect that you all do in terms of gay and lesbian um, uh, colleagues who are single, what, what extra layer do we have here with them? What are they saying? Or if you know about their experiences. You know, and I was thinking this too, as we were talking about it, and about those barriers, um, I would say that it's also worth mentioning that I, I would assume that there is that additional barrier there too. And mm -hmm. I think there's an extra complicating factor there because of how damaging the church as a large institution Absolutely. has been to LGBTQIA mm -hmm. people right. as a whole yeah. and to be trying to navigate that space and being a member of the community while dealing with all of that trauma, not like for yourself and also for, yeah, I, I cannot imagine the additional complications of it. Um, but I would have to say that I have not spoken to a lot of my colleagues who mm -hmm. are single, who are LGBTQIA about dating. Yeah. I think, I think there's definitely a, a, an extra layer of difficulty. I think you nailed it, like having to navigate being, and I think, you know, in a lot of ways, those of us who are allies in many different arenas, having to cons constantly apologize on behalf of the church for the damage it has done, but it's, it's tenfold 
on folks who are within the community that was damaged and also within the community that did the damaging. I mean, that has got to be the most painful Venn diagram, uh, you know, center of a Venn diagram, I think that's out there right now. So, um, you know, trying to, and I think, you know, we, we reached out to quite a few other folks to, to come on as well. And just people's schedules didn't line up, but, um, you know, it's, it's, the stories I've heard from, you know, folks that were out and dating pre, you know, 2009, it was such a slippery slope. Everyone was closeted, you know, their partners had to, were like getting denied, you know, it was like Peter denying Jesus constantly. Right. Mm. Like, Oh, I don't know that person. No. Oh, we just, we just, they're my my roommate. They're my, that's my roommate. Yeah. Um, and now I think depending on the community, a lot of that still happens. I mean, you know, depending on where they are and, and, and what kind of um, queer community is functioning there. You know, I've got a really good friend who's a Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia and she and her wife in their bubble of that church are, you know, accepted and, and, and doing well, but they feel very disconnected from their wider queer community and just are not involved in, in that very much because they're in this like very affluent suburb of Philadelphia. Um, and so they're having to kind of live this double life, you know, Mm. of finding, finding their community and advocating, but also being like literally Stepford wives for each other in this like picturesque, you know, community, this church where they're at. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think, I think it is just a level, an extra level of difficulty that we probably couldn't even scratch, even, even if we did have, you know, more, um, conversations that had been had with people, but, um, did you all talk about this in seminary at all in any kind of depth? Like, in the, like in the classroom? Yeah. No. No. That, we'll, we'll add that to the list of things I did not learn in seminary. Yes. That would have been helpful in my exactly. first two months of ministry. Yeah. Yeah. How um, to navigate that? At Jimmy's, you know, around a pitcher of beer. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, I mean, we sat and complained about it in apartments, like constantly. Yeah. yeah. So that was <laughs> happening. I mean, that's what Elise. That's what Elise and I talked about every week. Every sitting on the bus, bus ride. in our collars on CTA in the <laughs> south side of Chicago was our dating lives and the yep. looks we got from the people oh my gosh we could not imagine <laughs> so many people gave us the turnaround like what <laughs> what, what are, are those they? two nuns <laughs> I know. lesbian nuns how do they know about these things oh my gosh it was so funny and kind of depending on the looks we would either talk louder or talk softer because it was just kind right. of it was like a very it was a very interesting like social experiment i think in, in a lot of ways so. But well, and I, I think that that also speaks to another thing that I think is important about this entire issue is that large were anonymous individuals Mm -hmm. because we lived in Chicago in the context of this massive city. Yep. It was Mm -hmm. even unlikely that while we were on the bus to our congregation, that we would not run into someone from the church that we were going to. In fact, Mm -hmm. we never did. And all of those years I never ran into a parishioner on public transit in Mm -hmm. Chicago yep yep and I worked with that congregation for two years yeah so and took public transit the entire time unfortunately and that was such a a crappy route it was like a train bus to a train to a bus to a bus or two buses that took an hour for a 15 minute ride 
Anyway, yeah. <laughs> it was a whole other but topic. I, <laughs> yeah, right. But but I think that speaks to this whole other thing too, is that for me personally, it makes a huge difference that I live in a large metro area for me in mm-hmm. hopefulness of dating. Yeah. In in this context, my first interview for first call was at a small congregation in rural Pennsylvania had its own cemetery could not have dated in that community I just could not have have dated in the community and and it was about 30 minutes from where I grew up but I also was worried about dating even 30 minutes from where I grew up in such a small community because even Erie is a really small town it's a big small town um here I feel and I also live 25 minutes from church so I live right on the DC Metro line in Northern Virginia. And my congregation is 25 minutes out. So I feel also that my, my community is very different than, mm-hmm. than, than that. It but, is helpful, like not to run into parishioners in the grocery store and, you know, for the <laughs> yeah. most part and that, that kind of thing to feel like you do have some separation, I think yeah. is really, really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. If you you try to date it and if you had tried to date in rural Pennsylvania, a second date, it would have been like, oh, my grandma goes to that church. Like it it would have happened every time. Yeah. Terrifying. And I have to say it is the whole the whole prospect of that is like literally terrifying to me. And dating as a pastor, I just I think I I still like have these hang ups that I think people are going to it's going to take somebody. And, you know, dating me is going to take somebody who's like, you know, got a little bit of chutzpah to like get past (laughs) in general. It's going to take a little bit of like (laughs) whatever to date me anyway. But we're we're firecrackers without being pastors. (laughs) (laughs) And then you have to be able to get over that thing. So I need someone who's like very secure, like in themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, It does give me hope that I have like recently. I mean, you got engaged. That gives me great hope. Um, somebody if I can, this- anyone can, let's just say <laughs> um, <laughs> this was not in the cards people. So yeah, we're defying, we're defying gravity here <laughs> outside of Chicago, I think recently got engaged. But one thing that I'll say is like, we're friends on Facebook. That's how I found out that she's engaged, but I did not know she was dating someone. Me? So no, no, not you. I oh. knew you were dating someone. But yeah. This is somebody else, a colleague that I think oh. lives in the suburbs outside of Chicago recently got, got engaged. Yeah. And I didn't know she was dating someone, mm-hmm. which I think is probably the way to go for me. Yeah. Could you guys be- say more about the, you know, dating stuff and social media? Because usually people post stuff all the time um, mm-hmm. about their relationships. And so how do you guys manage that? Yeah, I think for me, it would depend on the, the, the medium. Like I would say probably that I might post about my relationship on Instagram. My Instagram is now private because I don't want my parishioners on my Instagram from when I was in college. Like you don't need to see. No, you don't need to go. You don't need to go dumpster diving on my Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I don't think that I would post about a relationship on Facebook and I don't really post on Facebook very much anyway, either, but I think that that's a good for me, that would be, that would be a good boundary. Mm-hmm. Um, well, because baby, because your baby boomer parishioners are on Facebook. Yeah. That's and, Facebook and was always my more public persona public. appearance. And then Instagram was kind of more of a personal page. I was, always, I've, I've always been weird about posting stuff about relationships anyway, because I've just, I always have this crippling fear that they'll end. 
And then it's like, and then I just have these pictures of this person. And like, you know, I said these great things and now they don't exist anymore. Or, you know, I just always hate the questions and the like, oh, like, I just can't, I'm I'm not a romantic person, but, um, but again, yeah, with the medium, it's, it's very different. Um, and you, you did, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but you did sort of tweak your social media. Yeah. Cause I got Uh, burned. Oh no. I got burned so hard. And like, for me, Adam, Adam is like big on putting things on social media. So he wanted to be Facebook official real quick. And my biggest hesitancy had nothing to do with him or my feelings on, you know, I, I kind of knew that we had the long game pretty early. Um, but after the whole debacle of me going through the process of figuring out having a child on my own and announcing that on Facebook, and then a week later, my dream guy drops into my lap, which like, ha ha, thanks God. That was hilarious. Um, <laughs> fun timing. Um, you know, announcing I'm in this relationship to me felt like, I hope people don't get mad at me because like my life shifted so drastically, you know, if, if you're looking at my, my, you know, profile, you know, posts and things like that, just on social media, it looks like I went from sperm donor baby to engaged in like a week. And, and you know, it was, it was a little, little more stretched out. I mean, we met pretty quickly, but, um, but yeah, so it's it. I, so yeah, my Facebook has changed because I, I'm no longer friends with people at my current congregation, but I'm still friends with folks from my internship congregation. And, you know, a lot of like, um, colleagues that are older, I'm friends with a couple of people who are now bishops, um, who weren't before, but they now are. Um, so yeah, that's definitely still more of like public persona with like glimpses into, mm-hmm you know, my private life, but. Yeah. So do you feel, you know, with all of the, whatever it's, whatever, did either one of you Google and see what visions and expectations is called now? No, it's okay. But whatever it is, you know, at what point do you feel like you need to notify your Bishop about something? Oh, I would say if I were engaged only. Yeah. I would, well, and I think in at least in my case, we both work with other pastors too. And I think that's a different thing. I would, I am at a comfort level with my senior pastor because I'm the associate that I would probably tell her much, obviously, right, right. Mm -hmm. That makes sense for her to have that heads up. At least I don't know how you feel about that. Have you, have you notified your bishop? Well, well, yeah. Well, he found out. Um, see, my my relationship with my bishop is a little different just because I've known him since I was 16 because he worked at my mom's church when he was in seminary. Um, mm. And has, and for for like it was like, oh, that's seminary and Kevin. And then it was family friend Kevin. And now it's Bishop Kevin. So we're he and I kind of navigate how those mm-hmm. relationships stack up. And so, um, I mean, I did call him or I emailed and asked for like a a 30 minute chat when I was considering, um, uh, having a child on my own, I wanted to make sure I wasn't, you know, stepping over any boundaries, which the, it or the new document is now called definitions and guidelines for discipline. I knew it had, Oh my gosh. 
Yes. Um, I'm not put, I mean, that makes visions and expectations sound so fluffy does. and sweet compared yes. to that. Yeah. So it says um, uh, the, the document states as an expression of its life in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this church embraces disciplinary processes of counseling, admonition and correction with the objective of forgiveness, reconciliation and healing simultaneously out of concern for effective extension <laughs> of the gospel. This church remains alert to the high calling of discipleship in Jesus Christ. Uh -huh. But it does admit that and this is an article from um, the ELCA.org. Uh, it does say visions and expectations has been misused as a juridical document and continues to be a source of great pain for many. So they do put that out there. Which yeah, I, I did see that. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. So I did have a conversation with Bishop Kevin about my desire of, for like parenthood and how I was kind of pursuing that. And he definitely, you know, asked kind of discernment questions and was just kind of curious about it. And then he also was called to counsel me through the backlash I got from um, my kind of congregation when that was announced. Um, I didn't, I did, I did make sure this time around with big news that, um, you know, we more mainstream news, more mainstream news. Um, so Adam and I, you know, did, you know, family and close friends, you know, Saturday that when he asked, and then first person I told Sunday morning was Stan, my co-pastor. I was like, Hey, <laughs> like you need to know this. And then I wasn't really sure how to tell the congregation, but Stan ended up taking care of that for me. Um, and just kind of announced it to them, um, at the welcome in all three services without even asking you if yeah. that was okay. <laughs> Um, oh, I mean, man. I mean, to, to be fair to him, I never said, let's not say anything. You know, um, I wasn't like, well, thinking, you were wearing your ring and I was wearing my ring. So it wasn't this like crazy. So Stan was like, so pastor Elise, what's that on your what's hand? What's that on your hand? And I was, oh, God, it was just so, I hate that. I hated it. <laughs> um, but, um, and then, so once the congregation knew, then I told Adam, we can put this on social media. So I right. went the opposite direction with the engagement news that I did with, you know, because ah. I am now, I am now firmly, firmly in the understanding that I don't have a true, per, a true personal life. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not allowed to do anything that, you know, for sure. Now I know for sure that this is just still a boundary here, um, which is not healthy, but uh, yeah, I made the mistake of announcing my, you know, desire to have a, a child, um, just kind of as a human being and, and, you know, not really considering, mm. um, my congregation and how they might react. Do I think that it went overboard and the reaction was insane? Yes. yes. Um, but okay. do I also admit that my communication maybe wasn't great? Sure. You know, but, well, but what was also interesting is that part of what, you know how in church and elsewhere, sometimes the issue that people seem to be blowing up about isn't the real issue, and it takes you a while to figure out what it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the presenting issue seemed to be, we found out about this on social media. That's horrible. Yeah. Um, and then as things unfolded. As the onion what peeled the back. Yeah, onion peel, onion peel. And what the real issue with at least some people was, they thought that the, um, you know, having a child on her own was a sign that she was actually lesbian and that they had been tricked into calling oh. a lesbian pastor 
And that's what they were actually upset about. Oh, interesting. What I thought you were going to say is that the issue was that you had a child out of wedlock. There were some folks that were really thrown by that. Yeah. I don't think they were. Had, yeah. But no, they I had there not was... considered the secret lesbian thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't, that, isn't so it fun? How isn't it fun how we just get surprised so much by these guys? <laughs> and it was a very small group of people that jumped to that conclusion. But it was they made enough noise that it became a big deal. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so so note to self, Kelsey, you never know <laughs> what's and, lying and out it's there. So, it's so interesting, too, because one of my one of my parishioners who I was just on the phone with her for like general pastoral care after kind of a doctor's visit that she had, you know, she reiterated how excited was how excited she was for me. Um after the engagement. And then she said that she had told her daughter who's Catholic about my engagement and her daughter's first like reaction was, well, good. Now we know for sure she's not gay. <gasps> and, and there it like, is again, all, which is ridiculous because you could still be yeah. <laughs> bi if you wanted to be bi. Right. Exactly. Like man, I could but- be bisexual, but marrying a man, I know plenty of friends and colleagues who identify as bisexual, but are in heterosexual presenting relationships, you know, it's like, but, but, you know, I think that's, you know, part of that is that even today, or maybe especially today, the single woman and the single man must be homosexual. You know, why wouldn't they above a certain age, right? Mm -hmm. By a certain age, you've, you know, you've gone through college, you've gone through graduate school, you're out working on your own and you don't haven't found anybody, you know, what's going on. I'm asking myself the same questions. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I I was asked, like, I spent a lot of hours of therapy asking those questions of like, what's wrong with me? Why have I done all of these incredible experiences with all these incredible people and still don't have a partner? Oh, that's right. Because I have taken every opportunity to go God knows wherever all over the world and genuinely yeah. have not settled yeah until right. like now same mm-hmm. same yeah I mean so, Kelsey, you know she was a yagam as well she went to Madagascar lucky thing but okay. um <laughs> but uh yeah I mean like our generation of women especially I kind of I kind of call us you know we're the we're the products of the bra burners right and so you know we we as kind of women like of like 28 to 40 were pushed by these groundbreaking women to like, go out, see the world, get educated. Mm-hmm. Like don't prioritize a man unless it's the love yes. of your life, you know, just like yes. all these things. And then, and then people wonder why we're single in our mid thirties. And, and yes. my big thing, and, and again, we're speaking completely from the heterosexual experience, but um, I feel like we should have like a little disclaimer, um, on the episode description, but, you know, I, I always used to say, you know, that I had this theory of the fall of the fall of the white man, which is white men of our generation. And some of them are phenomenal, you know, don't, don't hear, don't hear an attack here, fellas, but we're not pushed in that same way because of the privilege that they have due to their gender and their race. So I have been more educated, more well-traveled and just generally more well-rounded than damn near every man around my age that I've dated in my life. Mm-hmm. And most and of them had, 
and they still make more money. And most of them had an issue with that. They were intimidated Mm, by it. They were intimidated by it. They, 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 you know, couldn't hang, um, you know, and like Adam and I have had very different lives, but he is the first and man I dated that was impressed and admired me for what I'd done with my life up to this point and wasn't scared of it. And that's what I'm looking for, which is, that is what's so elusive. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, like not only should you not be scared away by the fact that I'm a pastor, but you should think it's the coolest thing you've ever heard in not a fetishy way. Right. Right. In not <laughs> yeah. a fetishy in way. In not a fetishy way. I hate so that we have think, to have that disclaimer. <laughs> right. The guy, the guy that I end up with should think, wow, that is so badass. Like she is doing such important work. And yeah. that I think is what is so difficult. Because I love him. That's Adam's perspective. And honestly, like the first time he said, I think it's actually really cool what you're doing. You're doing some really cool stuff. I was like, well, do you want to get married tomorrow? Because (laughs) (laughs) that's what I've been, that's what I've been looking for. Like that, you know, but well, maybe, yeah. maybe on those like match.com things, when you're filling out those surveys, you know, where it says like occupation or whatever, instead of putting like pastor, you should put healer of the world. <laughs> just badass. Yeah, just and badass. then just, you know, you're badass, badass healer of the world. And then, you know, hopefully that would open some conversation that could also shut people down, but you know, yeah, you'd look a little, yeah. you'd look a but little, you know, nuts. you can't filter, you can't filter for that kind of reaction on mm-hmm. the dating apps, right? right? There is no filtering to say like, yeah. And Elise, I don't know if you have like experienced this, but I often, when the question arises, like, what do you do for a living? And I tell people, I often sit there hesitantly trying oh, not just to, crippled just like crippled, crippled with anxiety like yes you to, know but and to wait because I don't want to have to like explain it away mm-hmm. but I feel like I have to so when someone asks me what I do I say oh I'm a Lutheran pastor I also but, want to add that, 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 that. I also <laughs> want to add I'm super politically prof- progressive sex positive I um I drink sex positive I okay drink. sex yeah. positive yes like <laughs> yes I am sex positive I drink I you know <laughs> like to go hiking I don't spend my entire life at church mm-hmm. and there was another one that I had like off the top of my head and I can't remember what it is um, yeah. oh also I have a master's degree and I have a master's degree like this is a highly educated position I didn't take a week-long course on public speaking like this is like a real thing right. like I went to school right. for or, an, or an online uh, ordination certificate right my favorite right. yeah right and I tried to be like very respectful of people's callings to be pastor and to do all of that but just so everyone knows like I went through a very long very arduous process in order mm-hmm. to be allowed to do the thing that I'm doing in my denomination but like mm-hmm. explaining that over a dating app is like the most like boner killer thing yes right. I mean how do you how do you ever how do you ever get there you know where they won't even have conversation about it yeah my right. favorite is and when I, I would just say I'm a Lutheran pastor and then they disappear and that's it that's, that's it, it. Well, and, and that's and it. that that often happens like okay well here's the end of the conversation or like mm-hmm. unmatched like the like like the conversation just disappears as though it never yep. happened. Mm-hmm. And that is, is a little bit of a struggle emotionally for me personally. 
Yeah. Um, that's, that's the big thing about online dating is it, you know, I feel like when you were dating by just like getting to know people in your real life and you would date for a couple of weeks and then break up or, you know, in college, you'd go out to a bar and like flirt with somebody, you know, whatever it was like one rejection per, you know, a hundred milliliters of water, right? Like one drop per whatever, but online dating, you can get rejected eight times in an hour or just like every single day. You know, I used to have this like goal that I would do when I was like really into it. Like, okay, like I'm gonna, I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want to be able to say I didn't try. So I would be like, I'm going to send three messages tonight. Like I'm going to, you know, look through these profiles and I'm going to send three messages. I would get a response like one out of 20. I mean, it was just like, so like, boom, three guys looked at your profile and said, Nope, like not even going to respond to this. Um, and then there were times when I was just too emotionally drained and I just wouldn't look at my, I wouldn't look at the apps for three months. I mean, it was just, you know, you don't want to do it to yourself. Yeah. It's a lot. I am a chronic, like on, off, on, on, on Mm -hmm. offer. But my thing is that I think like my personality lends it to be like, I can't stop the, the swiping. Like Mm -hmm. I can't, like I would sit there and swipe during all different kinds of hours. And I just need to be like, okay, I'm only going to swipe for 20 minutes yeah. today, and then that <laughs> needs to be it. And then I'll answer the messages that come through or like, you know, I'll yeah. message people as it comes through. Um, it is addictive. Yeah. I think that's why I like hinge because you can yeah. only do so many in a day, whatever yeah, they, they limit you. It, it can be addictive. It almost starts to feel like a game. It is. And yeah. I think that's, that's what I experienced in Chicago. I went, oh my gosh, Elise. And I mean, you were around for part of this. Like mm-hmm. I would go through these cycles so in my first two years of seminary, I dated a guy for six weeks in all four semesters. Yeah. So I would start at a certain time. Yeah. I would like swipe and go on a couple of dates. And then all of a sudden I would be dating someone for about six weeks. And then guess what? The Thanksgiving holiday comes. And I'm basically going to be away from yep. the end of November, mostly until January. Oops. Well, it's over yeah, now. That's not going to happen the spring, mm-hmm. The same thing happened. You know, you get to like the end of the semester oh like I have to go to CPE bye yeah you know somebody decided (laughs) they didn't want to be long distance when I was on CPE which was a two-hour drive down 55 or whatever that happened right yeah (laughs) that wasn't the reason right they'll tell you it's one thing but it's really not the other oh yeah exactly I mean I did the same thing in the fall of my Mm -hmm. of my midler year the same thing happened I would date someone for about six weeks and then the Thanksgiving holiday would run around yeah. And it would basically die. Be dead. Seminary is not structured for a good dating life. That's for sure. I mean, and then, and then again, we get back to the old visions and expectations. Like I was dating someone relatively seriously my senior year. So I did the fourth year internship for those who don't know. Um, and so I had three solid years in Chicago with like the summer breaks and all and the winter breaks. But, um, you know, I was with this guy almost the entirety of my senior year we met in August and this is an online dating person met in August, broke up in like the next May or something like that. But I knew I was going to Oregon for my internship before I even, or I knew I was applying for that internship, you know, when he and I started dating and so many people asked me, is he coming with you? And I would say no, because he would have to live separately from me. And they're like, what? That's stupid. What do you mean he'd have to live separately from you? I was like, as a candidate in this process, he, we would have to be married 
for him to come with me on internship and be able to live in the housing with me. And, people and lots were, of people do that. Lots oh yeah. Of people so many get people get married before internship just, just to be able to do, or get married before they come to seminary or get married before their first, we got to get married before my first call. We got to get married before my first Ooh. call so that you can come with me, you know, so, or, or like, we got to get married so that I can restrict to your area That's a concern that I have because I've seen that too, where I'm Mm -hmm. saying to somebody, you know, comes and says, you know, getting ready to go off on an internship and says, Oh, I, I, I got engaged. And I'm like, why did you do that? (laughs) And, you know, knowing that they weren't really that in love with that person and, uh, you know, getting responses like, well, I just didn't want to be by myself on internship. Mm -hmm. And I would say, we'll get a puppy. Yeah. <laughs> or and then I didn't, I didn't want to go to first call single. They end up getting single. divorced later, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Or I didn't want to go to first call single. It doesn't create, you know, I, you know, I just wonder it, ah, so complicated. It's this weird backlash that the, that the church is experiencing of they they were trying to uphold this idea of what a healthy romantic sexual relationship is, mm-hmm. but through the inability to change they are now actually creating toxic marriages yeah, and, and marriages where people weren't ready or, or, you know, felt, felt backed into a corner by their employer or their educator or this institution, which is not how anyone should choose to spend their life with someone. Well, you know, I'm just thinking the, one of the things that's different about being a clergy person, as opposed to being a lawyer or a doctor or the manager of a pizza hut or whatever it is, is that in those other jobs, um, the people that you're on staff with and your customers, clients, patients, whatever, they don't see you with your spouse or your boyfriend. I mean, you know, do you have any idea what the dating life is like of your dentist? I mean, we don't know that, right? That's not shared. I that don't person's even have a dentist not, right now. <laughs> right. That person's not, I know, and that's a problem, Elise. You know I know, I mean? mom, I'm working on it. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, your dentist isn't standing there, you know, introducing, um, you know, his husband to you or something mm-hmm. like that. And yeah. I have to say that as a patient of a dentist, I do not have the power to fire that dentist from their whole practice. If you don't like how they're living. Wedlock. Yeah. You got yeah. it. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so that, I think we just have to, other- mm-hmm. We are not in any, any kind of regular profession, people. This is, this is a nope. sacrificial life calling. And we can't even even go into the, uh, the topic of accidental pregnancy for female clergy, right? Of like, oh, Lord. I mean, <laughs> it's just like, because we're not supposed to be, we're not supposed to be sexual uh, So then they to know with. you're having sex. Yep. And, you know, like. Talk we, about maybe a marriage that shouldn't happen. Yeah. If you get into that position. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, your, your options are very limited in that. Um, <laughs> but that's something we might right. not scratch the surface of at this exact moment. Um, well, yeah. this has been awesome. It has been. <laughs> thank thank you for actually, Kelsey, you are our first ever guest. First ever guest. On oh your my unmute. goodness. We'll because send you a plaque. Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> yeah. Or at least I was thinking we really probably need to get baseball caps with your on mute on them. And then we could and then we could like share them with people Send that swag. have come on. <laughs> I love that. Sure. Who wants to really some... invest? 
you know, we, we only manage to record like every four weeks when we're available and it takes me a week to edit it, but yes, let's add merch. To, <laughs> maybe it'll <laughs> to motivate our, us. Maybe it'll motivate us. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But, well, we're um, pretty, but, no. but this has been a great conversation and we'll need to, I think, have um, other guests on that have different life experiences and For keep sure. working on it because I think as has been pretty clear, nobody's helping us with this. <laughs> You know, no. and, and really yeah. should everybody be out there trying to make it up on their in on their own and suffering the consequences? Mm. No. Um, you know, I think we can do better as a church on that. In terms of things around sexuality and relationships, I think we need to be doing more to because because I assume that just just the way that culture is going. Um, that a lot of folks in your generation and the generation behind you will probably be have a higher percentage of people who go into their first calls as a single person. Yeah. Um, mm. I mean, I mean, much more than mine, for instance. Mm -hmm. And um, and so we got to take that we got to take that pretty seriously. But, well, you know, what is what does holy living look like um, in, in, in these situations in, in the two thousands? In the two yeah. thousands. But, but thanks for it. having thanks for having good, honest conversation about it and also being willing to be vulnerable and sharing your mm -hmm. stories, too. Yeah, yeah, of course. This was a joy. It was like so I said, fun. I love to listen to you all. So oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. We've got going on the podcasting. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it so much. Oh, my I goodness. Well, thanks. Thanks. <laughs> <I will>. for <laughs> thanks for being will with us, Pastor Kelsey. And uh, I'm sure we'll hear from you again soon. Yep. Fabulous. Keep us posted. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. Kelsey. Bye.